Hey, smart mamas. Welcome to the Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups podcast, a podcast about balancing mom life and work life and everything in between. Being a mama is a hard job. We are three nurse anesthetists reaching out to support and encourage other moms with hectic and chaotic lives. I want to be a nurse anesthetist. No topics are off limits. Relationships, finance, mental health, work. And we aren't sugarcoating anything. No way or way. This is real life, real moms, real advice. And we want this to be interactive. We want to hear from you. The good, the bad, and the ugly. Hello, smart mamas. Welcome back to another episode of Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups. This is Lacey along with Ellen and we're with my special coworker, Tina. And I'm so excited to have, you know, somebody that like I know in real life on this podcast. This is actually really fun for me, but the issue is very serious. And I'm really glad that Tina reached out to us to bring this issue to the forefront and be willing to share her story. So thank you so much, Tina, and welcome to the podcast. Oh, thank you. It's my pleasure to be here with you lovely ladies tonight. Yeah, I'm really excited to hear about your whole story. I know that it serves a purpose, not just, you know, today and always, but like, especially with everything that's been going on in our nation with mental health and how this past year has been going. So can you tell us a little bit about your background and how we ended up having you on the show today? So my background is I'm a nurse anesthetist. I've been in practice for five years. Before that, I have been a nurse in and out of the ICU since 2005. And before that, and currently actually still, I am a licensed paramedic. So I've been a paramedic since 2001. So that's kind of my background, starting out in pre-hospital medicine and then moving forward to my favorite career, I would say, being a nurse anesthetist. I am a mother of three beautiful daughters. I have twins that uh, turns 10 in June. And then I have a 12 year old who turned 12 in March. And I think that what I'm going to talk about is, is really important. It's something that does not get a lot of airtime and something that a lot of people are afraid to talk about. You know, you, I always liken mental health to having a chronic condition like type one diabetes. Every parent who has a kid with type one diabetes has an action plan at their school. And everybody knows that that kiddo has type one diabetes and knows how to address if their blood sugar gets low or if their blood sugar gets high. What doesn't happen at school is, what do you do if you have a kid that has emotional issues? There is no action plan for that. And teachers and administrators and parents in general are are not necessarily equipped to deal with that. You raise a really good point when you bring up diabetes because people aren't afraid to talk about diabetes. Like people aren't afraid to talk about it. It's not something to hide. It's not something to be ashamed of. It's just the way that you are. Exactly. And we as a family have a commitment to talk openly and honestly about mental health to anybody who asks us a question or inquires about anything. And that's one of the reasons why I'm here on the podcast is to share our family's story so that other people can understand that the path that we walked was super rocky for a variety of reasons, but it's worth talking about, particularly in times like we have right now with the pandemic looming into year two of the pandemic and everything else. So I think it's really important that we normalize mental health 
and all of the facets that come with it, the same way that you would normalize high and low blood sugar to a diabetic. Yeah. Have you always felt this way or has it become more after it's been something close and personal to you? I think that we always felt like we were doing the right thing in terms of parenting and being emotionally present with our kids. But we had a circumstance back in 2019 where one of my twins, who was then eight, made an attempt on her life. She tried to commit suicide. And at the age of eight, it's something that's outside of a lot of statistics. There aren't pediatricians who assess for things like that at your well visit. They might do a fasting blood sugar, but they will never ask your eight-year-old if they feel like killing themselves. Mm -hmm. Did they do it at all? Did, like, did they do that at all in any age group? Uh, not until they hit adolescence, from what I understand. And then it's more along the lines of, do you feel sad? Do you feel depressed? There's certain questionnaires that they'll give you ahead of time, but it's never, it doesn't seem like it's ever a conversation that, that is given the amount of time that perhaps it should. You have to build a certain amount of trust with a patient before they'll ever open themselves up to you in that respect. And even our daughter wasn't necessarily as open until we started asking the tough questions. So she had always been anxious, just at, like an anxious kid, super bright, super advanced reading level. She read Harry Potter in kindergarten, cover to cover and loved it. And you, that's just her. And we always kind of knew that she behaviorally was like maybe a little bit different than our other kids. Like she didn't have situational awareness and still doesn't actually, she would follow a butterfly in front of a Mack truck and not think twice about it. Not even seeing the truck coming or, you know, that sort of a thing. And the world was a very anxiety provoking place for her. So we did talk to our pediatrician about that when she was seven and said like, she's really anxious about things that maybe a seven-year-old shouldn't be worrying about. And they suggested that we take her to the um, social worker that they had in the department to do cognitive behavioral therapy, which seemed like, like the right step, right? So we need to talk about these things and kind of diffuse whatever is going on in her mind and start getting her some coping mechanisms. And what ended up happening is that particular therapist was set up to do sessions like once or twice a month with her clients. So in that once or twice a month, we weren't actually making any forward progress. We were just talking basically about the same things and not really being able to implement anything or learn coping mechanisms and things like that. And when we reached out to her after, the, after Juliet tried to take her life, she basically said that she could no longer be our therapist because she was not set up for weekly therapy. And that if we really felt that she was a risk to herself, that we should take her to the emergency room. So like no support, just no support. Right. I mean, we were essentially cut off. She was like, I'm sorry, you can't schedule appointments with us anymore. I wonder if it's like a, a thing where nobody wants to take on the liability or, I mean, it just seems so crazy that in that moment when they need your help the most, someone would be so unhelpful. Yeah, it, it was an interesting thing. And apparently in talking with the pediatrician a number of weeks later, they said that she was never really set up to be a primary therapist for anyone. And my thought was, but if she's not set up to be anybody's primary therapist, then what is her purpose? 
Right. Well, why did you send us there would be a great question. Like, why did you, why did you tell us to start here if this isn't the purpose? So Tina, I know that, you know, I mean, obviously I know you outside Mm -hmm. of this podcast and we were there for you when you reached out to us to say that this had started and, you know, we've kind of been talking about this all along. So I'm trying to not like fill in the pieces that I already know, but can you walk us through the different steps that you had to take? So you started first in the ED. So we started in the ED. We sat in, you know, the behavioral lockdown padded room where we watched, we were watched on a camera. She and I hung out in there. They put her in paper scrubs because if you are a suicidal ideation patient, they don't let you keep anything. So they basically search your person. So my eight-year-old was searched and she was put in paper scrubs and I was made to sit in the room with her, all of my belongings, with the exception of like my shoes had to be locked up in a locker. And we waited probably for four plus hours for a social worker to come and talk to us for about 30 minutes. And the social worker said, well, we're going to create a safety plan for you to go home with. And then she probably needs some follow-up in the future, likely with a psychiatrist or a counselor. And that was the extent of our ER visit. And we were sent home at like two in the morning. And I would imagine you did not feel prepared to go home and now like care for your child who up until this point you were, I would say, fine with. And then now you have this like huge challenge that is totally uncharted territory. Well, it's so it it has to do with safety, right? So in order to keep her safe, the question was, well, do you have any weapons at your house? Do you, does she have access to knives? Does she have access to medications? Things like that. So the question was, how do we keep her safe in our environment at home when we're not really sure if she's still looking to hurt herself, which is something that they didn't really assess. Mm-hmm. I feel like those questions were not really asked by the social worker. It was more like, oh, you're feeling better now, right? So we can do Do you safe- think they believed you? Like, do you think that they believed her that she really wanted to do this? I don't think they adequately asked the questions yeah. in the you could understand. Yeah. Cause maybe like, because she was eight years old, it's like you said, it's like totally, you know, not statistically in the age group that people would imagine it to be. So they maybe minimized it or, you know, there was some kind of lack of connection there. And then like for an eight-year-old to even process, I mean, for an eight-year-old to attempt is pretty impressive. I'll put it that way. And then on top of that, Mm -hmm. like to be able to then process those feelings and what happened, I always wonder like, is an eight-year-old capable like emotionally and cognitively of thinking like critically in that level without any support? I would say that it depends on the eight-year-old. So that that very question actually came up in a family therapy session that we had when one of our other girls was in intensive outpatient therapy for her issues, which also kind of added fuel to the fire of Juliet's issues. In any case, they said it's very uncommon for a child under the age of 10 or 11 to really understand the finality of death and what it means to take your life. And I, her therapist at Prairie Care actually was the one who led that session. And I pulled him aside 
later on and said, do you feel like she doesn't know what's going on? And he said, no, I 100% know that she absolutely understands what it means to die and how, how it, how she can get herself to that point. But I, I would say that's atypical of the average eight-year-old. So did they tell you that, I mean, obviously not right then when you came in, but at some point through the process of healing and therapy, did they address with you like what age nowadays is appropriate for us to start this conversation with our kids? Or, you know, some people are probably from the school of thought of like, oh, well, don't bring it up. If the kid's not bringing don't it up. Don't put the idea in their the head. Idea. Right. right. Yeah. And then the other people would probably be like, well, if they're not going to do it, then talking about it is not going to cause them to do it. It's just going to make them aware that like, if you ever have these feelings, you need to talk to somebody about it, you know, like from an educational standpoint. So like, what, can you tell us a little bit about what the belief is or what the, you know, school of thought is from the therapists that, that you told you? From what I understand it's very kid specific and it's very circumstance specific. So the idea behind like suicidal ideation is there's two options. The first option is suffering through whatever you think is so unbelievably unbearable. And the second option is ending whatever that suffering is by any means that you can think of. So if you have a kid that seems like they're struggling, and again, you have to, you have to be looking at that kid through the right lens. Mm-hmm. So Juliet, for example, was never assessed by the therapist that we were seeing every other week or every third week because she didn't think that a kid that age could have those issues. Now, what we knew at home was that sometimes she would say to us, sometimes I just feel like dying. And we really wrote it off. And there are, are kids out there and there are posts that I've seen on CRNA moms where they have kids under the age of five that are saying that. And I hop on those posts and say, like, you need to ask your five-year-old those hard questions because you really, you need to tread carefully when a kid says something like that. It's not normal for a kid to say something right, like that. Right, right. I think that we sometimes minimize it because you're like, they're just being dramatic or, you know, whatever. Exactly. And exactly. you're right. It's not normal, like, for a child to feel that. Like, my kids, my, my four-and-a-half-year-old recently started saying, like, you know, Oh, if, you know, if this happens, am I going to get dead? That's what he calls it. And mm-hmm. like, basically like if he gets hurt or if like something happened or he'll like turn around and like the fly was dead on the floor. So he was like, Oh, the fly mm-hmm. got dead. So like, it's the first time that he's like even mentioning death, but I feel, I agree with you. It's not normal for a child that age to want to inflict that on themselves. Right. It's like and- a means of dealing with something. And essentially it's, it's like an escape. Like if I don't swimming pool, I have to climb out. If the swimming pool is terrifying to me and the only way to climb out of the pool is to kill myself, then I, you know, then that's, that's like the choice in their head. If that makes sense. Yeah. That's so so Tina, like what you've learned through, and I know that you had some inpatient Mm-hmm. time as well as a lot of outpatient therapy sessions yep. with just your daughter and then with your family as a whole. Yeah. What would you tell me to do if I came to you and said, my five-year-old just said, I wish I wasn't alive anymore. Like what kind of questions, when you say like, ask the hard questions, like what are those questions? Mm-hmm. What should parents, like, what should we do? What do you wish you would have maybe done 
upfront knowing what you know now? I think I ask a lot more open-ended questions because on occasion, these feelings still return for her. They haven't happened in a while and she's very transparent to us when they do happen. She seeks us out, which is super helpful. You have to ask what they mean by that. You know, if if you say, if, you know, if your five-year-old, your seven-year-old, your 13-year-old says, I'd be better off dead than doing, you know, the dishes. You need to stop the conversation and you need to pull them aside and say, okay, so you said something that I'm really concerned about. I want you to tell me more about what you're feeling right now and what led you to make this statement. And then you have to take it a step further and say, so if you do indeed feel like the only way out of whatever situation you're in is to end your life, how would you do it? Like, what's your plan? And if they actually have a plan, you need to go to the ED. Because once they have a plan, that means they're not only feeling hopeless, but they're also figuring out ways to end their life to get rid of that hopeless feeling. Mm-hmm. And the other thing that the that our therapist at Prairie Care, which is another story about how we ended up in intensive outpatient therapy with both girls, but they said the question to ask is, do you feel like, because sometimes kids are dramatic and they will play this card of, well, I feel like dying right now. You have to ask like, okay, so like right now, if you could go like right now dead, you'd want to do that. And if they say yes, like right now I'm ready, then that is way more concerning than a kid that says, but I have like soccer next week and I have a birthday party on Sunday. Mm-hmm. And like, I wouldn't, you know, I would never be able to see grandma again and that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. So if they're still looking at the long term and looking out from that particular day, then it's a little bit less concerning than I'm ready to go right now. Where's the cliff? I'm going to jump, you know, that kind of a thing. So those are the tough questions. And the question of, you know, how often does this happen? Like, are there certain times of day? Are there certain circumstances that you feel this way? And it has to come from a place of love and empathy, not from a place of like anger and disgust because it, it like derailed your day. So if we're at the zoo and we're having a great time and we spent a hundred dollars getting our family of five at the zoo, we will literally leave the zoo if mental health needs to be addressed. So it, it, we value life in our family to that degree that we will do what, what is necessary, I guess, to make sure that the lives that we encounter are preserved. So how do you deal with that where it's like, okay, somebody, everyone's having a good time and then something is triggered in one kid and all of the sudden like they need to go and the whole family needs to go. And how, because we use that as like a consequence for our kids where it's like, okay, if you're being naughty and then you're, you know, we need to leave and we need to take you out of this situation, then like the whole family kind of gets punished for that. Does that make sense? So like, how do you not end up punishing the rest of the family or making it feel like it's a punishment when you are trying to put mental health at the forefront and you are trying to support one kid, but also not punish the others. Does that make sense? It does. So it starts by turning the conversation into something where somebody letting an adult know or a sibling know that they're having a mental health issue, feeling anxious, feeling concerned, feeling frustrated, feeling suicidal. It's not a misbehavior. Mm -hmm. You can't, you can't frame it in a misbehavior type 
circumstance. So, you know, going back to that diabetic kid, if the diabetic kid's blood sugar is 600, that kiddo needs medical attention, right? Or you need to do something differently or leave where you're at, whatever you need to do. But you would never say to the other kids that are in the family, well, you're being punished because so-and-so's blood sugar is way high or whatever. So you, yeah. you frame- and, and I'm not saying that yeah, you're no, like I, I, intentionally trying to punish yeah, them. Yeah, I yeah. just was wondering like how it does it. Cause, and I'm not saying that someone should be punished for, for their feelings, but yeah, no, all I'm understand. saying is like, it could like, how do you not affect like negatively affect the, your other children, your, the rest of your family when this kind of comes out of nowhere sometimes? So the short story is it does negatively affect everybody in the family. That's the short story. The long story is we all work on our coping mechanisms and we all work on finding empathy so that when any of the girls are having trouble, we try and connect with the other ones to say, thank you for supporting Juliet or Lauren or Anna on their, in their frustration, or I understand this really sucked for you because we had to leave this place early. And, you know, do you want to talk about that? And do you want to tell me how that made you feel? Because we always, we frequently, not always, but we frequently tell the girls that we value life above friendships, above circumstances and things like that. So if we need to leave a place, if we need to intervene, if we need to, you know, my oldest had a a classmate who was making statements and she's one of those LGBTQ plus kiddos and they are at such high risk for just being ostracized and the suicide statistics and LGBTQ plus kids are, it's, it's unbelievable. If you look at them, how high risk they are for ending their lives, because literally they're being persecuted for the fabric of who they feel they are in any case. So we reach out to teachers and we, you know, we don't keep those statements and things in. And, you know, we do try not to let it affect the other kids, but in reality it does. And my 12 year old would say that, her life is significantly more stressful because of her two sisters and that she gauges how close her friends are based on who she can trust with what goes on in our fa- in our home life and our family life and it's i never thought that i would have to you know have to counsel a 12 year old through well why do you feel like you need to i mean she like vets her friends before she really tells them about her sisters and about their mood disorders and things like that, because she feels like somehow she's going to be judged through that lens of mental illness by other people. Mm-hmm. That's so advanced for a 12 year old. She's pretty mm-hmm. impressive. Yeah. Is, is there a family history that you could have attributed any of this to, or is this completely like out of left field for the entire family? So it's interesting that you say that. So in working with Julia in therapy and in family therapy and some other things, looking back at my own childhood, I had panic attacks as a kid that were not, that were something that I think my parents weren't willing to address to the point that there were only certain friends that I could hang out with. There were only certain spaces I could be in before I like had this urgent, like, you know, I can't get air kind of need to go home. Like home was my safe space. And I, you know, it's, it's a very interesting thing. And looking back, it probably was legit, like panic attacks at similar ages, like age seven, age eight. Yeah. And it's not something that I really carried into adulthood so much. 
But I think back then it wasn't, you know, you didn't, your parents didn't take you to therapists. You didn't talk about stuff like that. You were just like that emotional kid and you just needed to figure it out. Basically was kind of how my parents' philosophy was. Yeah. Um, and without going into detail or anything for Juliet, is this something that was triggered by like an event or someone else is doing like how like bullying is huge or is this something that was completely internal and just like an ongoing thing her whole life that you had no idea about? So I think it's kind of a mix. So her twin Lauren has disruptive mood dysregulation disorder, which she was diagnosed with shortly after Juliet made her inpatient stay for her suicide attempt. And Lauren's kind of a, she's just an irritable kid who has kind of an explosive temper at times. And Juliet's a really emotionally sensitive kid who is really sensitive to the fact that her twin sister is really loud and, and negatively emotional. And she internalized a lot of that. So in the internalizing of a lot of that, I think she kind of wound herself into this baby Lauren acts this way because I feel this way kind of a thing. And there were a couple of interesting things that occurred at her school that also contributed to it. She had a first grade teacher that didn't appreciate her unique gifts. I would say she was very frustrated with Juliet as a student because she did her best work all the time and that took longer. And she had no tolerance for this writing assignment taking a few minutes longer or being the last person in line or school school almost became a source of emotional damage for her because she would have stomach aches at school and then she had bladder spasms from really bad constipation and her teacher thought she was faking when she was asking to go to the nurse multiple times during the day and she never reached out to us to let us know and it wasn't until our pediatrician got involved that said like hey she legit has like if she needs to go to the nurse, she needs to go to the nurse. And her teacher was just like, oh yeah, she's been asking me for like, you know, two or three times a day for the last couple of weeks to go to the nurse and she wouldn't let her. So Juliet just shut down and put her head down on her desk. And then her teacher would get even more angry with her because it would take her longer to finish assignments. So it was, it was a very interesting well, year, actually two years where we kind of wondered, you know, if it wasn't just a culmination of things, her being just a, kind of an anxious, emotional child at baseline, having a teacher who really wasn't in tune with her, and then having a home life where it was, our home life was hard. It was not positive. We were not in a good spot. Like, so I would say that one of the blessings from this entire circumstance is we've gained way better parenting skills and we have a much more positive home life than we have ever had with these girls. Um, And I think that by far has benefited all of us. That's so strong of you to say. So that, that is very powerful. And that is need to find a silver lining in this, but that is a really good like perspective and way to look at it. Tina, what are some of the like, positive parenting strategies that you've learned throughout this that we can use? Because there are plenty of times where we get frustrated with our kids or our kids like tonight. I mean, this is not the same thing, but you know, my five-year-old just 
kind of like hit a wall and just got frustrated at everything, got frustrated at story time, got frustrated at brushing teeth. And then it was just like, you know, these temper tantrums and he's five. And so he can actually do some damage now. But like that frustration and that like out of control kind of feeling that kids can have, like what kind of parenting strategies did you gain from some of this? So the first thing I did was a lot of reading. When um, Juliet was an inpatient, I took six weeks of FMLA to to try and figure this whole thing out. I knew she needed more follow up, and she needed to. We needed to establish care with a psychiatrist, and we needed to get it figured out. And I knew I wouldn't be able to do that like nights and weekends. And I needed to make sure that the school was on board with the safety plan, et cetera. So I started looking into like what I could read. And the first book that I read was The Explosive Child by Ross Green. And that book completely reframed the lens that I was evaluating our struggles through. So instead of looking at the kiddo, it's kind of like looking at the root of something instead of the symptom. So being frustrated and out of control is a symptom of something, right? Because kids try really hard to do the best they can. Kids are are usually fairly resilient and they really do try and they reach the end of their, you know, their coping mechanisms, their ability to do what they need to do. And then you start seeing symptoms, yelling at our house. It's, you know, screaming, hitting occasionally. Both the girls have learned how to patch drywall because they've thrown stuff and actually created holes in our walls. Good consequence to learn right. how to yeah. and, and a good skill. These are the like <laughs> skills, right? So they both yeah. know how to patch drywall. They both know how to touch up the paint. And they both understand that they need to use their coping mechanisms as much as they can. But I think that book by far kind of reframed how I was evaluating things. Juliet had a lot of trouble at school just with the way her teacher had stuff arranged. Her thought, Juliet's thought processes aren't your average. She was in third grade at the time. They're not your average third graders. And her teacher really couldn't adapt to that. And really had trouble. And Juliet had trouble with the, the chaos of the room and all these sorts of things. And I actually bought a copy of The Explosive Child for this school guidance counselor for her third grade teacher and for the principal. And I got a copy of each of the subsequent books for them as well and said, if you read these and you consider what's written in them, it will actually help all of the kids at school, not just my daughter. Because there were other kids that were having similar behavioral issues. And those kids were literally just being sent out of the classroom, like sent away. And one of the worst things that you can do to a kiddo that's struggling emotionally is send them away because it literally feels to that kiddo that they're being thrown away. I will no longer deal with you. I am sending you away so that I don't even have to look at you. And that's exactly how Julia felt in third grade when stuff would occur and her teacher would be like, you need to leave the room. I like this. Yeah, this is so I love great. this perspective, Tina, of like looking at like this is a symptom, not the problem. Mm-hmm, so how right. do you dig down to figure out what what is triggering what this is a symptom of? So it starts with asking a lot of like open-ended questions. One of the things that I love using is tell me more about that. Mm-hmm. So an example. So Juliet's math in third grade. They had three classrooms and there were three levels of math. She was in the highest level of math. So when math would start, you had to get out your dry erase marker. You had to get out your 
dry erase board that you kept on your lap. You had to go sit in a circle by the front of the room. And in doing that, there were like 12 other students in the room that were leaving and another 12 that were arriving. And that sensory wise completely overwhelmed her. She could not remember her highlighter. She couldn't remember her lap board. She, and so she would sit at her desk because she couldn't remember what she was supposed to get because the room was so loud and just the cacophony of, of people moving and shuffling and whatever. And so she would arrive to the circle late and then her teacher would say things like, well, you need to pay attention. You got here, you know, like she would almost be punished in the moment for like, but this is so overwhelming. I literally can't remember what I'm supposed to do. So we started asking her questions about that because she would always say that she hated math, even though she's very good at math. And so we asked her like, well, what do you hate about math? And she's like, I'm never there on time. I can never get to the circle in time to look at the first problem. And then by the time I finish the first problem, they've already moved on. And then I'm behind again. And that cycle would just kind of continue for the entire math lesson. So that led her concluding, like, I hate math. I'm not good at it. I love this episode right now because what I'm hearing is that from a young age, we're so intolerant of people not fitting into a box mm-hmm. or being different or processing things differently or having different like needs that we literally are like causing mental health issues in our children. Yes. And then on top of that, when they're established, we further don't address them properly. And it's like this huge epidemic and no one has any clue why. And I feel like I'm learning so much. I love episodes like this when we take it back to childhood because obviously it doesn't just spring up like when you're an adult. You know, it's like a long history right. of things that led to it. And so it always, I feel like it always makes me such a better parent because it makes me evaluate like my own issues that I neglect to address and maybe like take out on my kids or like the way I talk to them sometimes or the, you know, how I, maybe address them or don't address them or whatever. Like it really, I think that there's so much to be said for like really taking the time to look at yourself and how you're affecting your child's upbringing and like the skills you're teaching them or not teaching them or, you know, like what, what resources and environment you're providing them. Like you said, it's all about safety. And our goal is to keep them like, not just physically safe, but like make them feel emotionally and mentally safe as well. And I feel like a lot of times they're so failed by just lack of preparation. So I love that you even bought those books for the school because if more people took the time to, you know, learn more than just what they're taught in their, you know, education degree, then I feel like it would be so much better because someone would be looking out for these kids, not just at home, but at school and like really following their development and tell a parent like, Hey, you know, they're doing this. I'm concerned. And instead of blaming them, like you said. Well, and I, the biggest, one of the biggest things that, that we discovered was that it's really important to love the kid that's last in line as much as you love the kid that got there first, because that kid that got, you know, that's the last one in line, which was frequently my kids were always made to feel like somehow they didn't measure up because they weren't in the middle of the pack or they weren't, you know, higher up on the bell curve. And what Juliet's entire circumstance taught us is that 
the kid, the last kid in line, the shortest kid, the kid that reads at the lowest level still deserves as much love and attention and, you know, support as the first kid in line, the, the best reader, the kid that got the hundred on the test and all of those things. And I think that in a, in, with the way education is, is arranged right now, there really isn't a lot of space for kids to learn in their own way because there are so many metrics and benchmarks and testing and all that kind of stuff. So I think that you really have to evaluate like, and this is one thing that we struggled with as a family is how do you love the kid that is making your life really difficult? And how do you advocate for the kid that desperately needs to be advocated for in a way that helps them and is meaningful? And I think that's one thing that we're always striving to do for our kids is to advocate in ways that is meaningful and helpful to them. And one of the things that we did was we actually took our kids out of that school and we found a private charter school for our kiddos. And for the first time, we actually had positive parent-teacher conferences where they said, I love the fact that your now fourth grader can read at a high school level. And it is a challenge for us to find books that she is interested in that still challenge her reading level. Previously, the elementary school was like, well, we're sorry, we don't have any books that are advanced enough for her. So she'll just have to read what we have, which is, it's an odd place to be as a parent because you know, your, your teacher spends just as much time as you do with your kids. So if you have a teacher that, that loves the uniqueness of your child, then they're going to flourish because they're going to feel that love and they're going to feel special. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you have a, a school system that's more interested in those benchmarks and the testing and stuff like that, and doesn't really have a, a stance on the day-to-day you know, how is your kid doing in school? How do they feel about school? Are they happy? Are they social? Are they inclusive? Then, you know, I I think the schools do a disservice to our kids. They don't really educate them. They kind of move them along. Yeah, totally. Or they almost like end up punishing them for being advanced. Right. And like putting in, holding them back for sure. I remember that from when I was in school where it was like the smartest kid was the biggest troublemaker. Mm-hmm. And they're bored. Wasn't, yeah, they were bored. And totally. but like I just remember his name was Ben, and he was the smartest kid in probably our high school and when we were like freshmen. But he was the biggest troublemaker and he ended up getting sent to live with like an aunt and uncle the end because his parents just like he didn't even graduate. I don't think so. But like I, I remember that and I always think about that as like how can we take care of all of these kids who need our help? Because really, I feel like school caters too, and and we're just getting into kindergarten. So we're we're learning here, but I feel like school caters to like the like top of the bell curve. But there's all these people on the sides of the bell curve yep. that don't that just kind of don't fit in and they just kind of get ignored on both sides. Yeah, for sure. Tina, can you update us on how your girls are doing now? And like what their life looks like in order to be how they are? So Juliet was diagnosed with a mood disorder. She went through intensive outpatient therapy and the consensus amongst the psychiatrist and the therapist there was that she probably is pediatric bipolar. However, 
we have a very conservative psychiatrist that we see now as an outpatient. And he has seen that diagnosis. He's been in practice probably for 30 years. And he said that he's seen that diagnosis wax and wane for this age group. So he said it, it's more important that we address the mood disorder and not really put another uh, descriptor on it. And, our, you know, we're not, we um, look at diagnoses as, while yes, they are labels, they really kind of make, uh, they give the professionals meaning to how they treat the kids kind of a thing. So we're not, you know, we, it, it's interesting when they told us that at first, when Juliet was an intensive outpatient, they had said, well, we don't want you to be crushed by this, or this isn't catastrophic. And I just, I kind of laughed and I was like, well, why would I be crushed by this? So like, she is who she is. And you're assigning her a descriptor that provides meaning to the other professionals that are trying to help her. So they have a basis of where to, where to start, essentially. I said, she, you know, you can put any label you want on her, but she's still who she is. Mm -hmm. And that's certainly not going to change with any diagnoses that she carries. Now, her sister, same thing. She still has her diagnosis. And I would say that the behaviors are things that we are always working on. You know, some days are easier than others. Juliet today didn't want to go to camp at her favorite place. And it was like pulling teeth together there. And, you know, everything was a refusal and she didn't want to eat and she didn't want to do this, that the next day. And when I picked her up, she was like, this was the best day ever. I'm so glad you made me go. I'm so sorry that breakfast was kind of a mess and that, you know, the morning was really rough. I really had a good time and I'm glad I went. So I think we're kind of crossing the bridge into where she can be more reflective into her own emotions. I love that she was able to recognize not just like her own emotions, but like how it affected everyone else and like show that empathy of like, hey, like what I did made things harder for you and for other people and that she was able mm -hmm. to express that. I really think that that is a, a wonderful sign. And we really try and model that as adults here too. There are days when my temper is very short and I just, you know, if, if there was one more thing added to my plate, you know, everybody, every mom has those days, every parent has those days <laughs> where you're just like enough's enough, you know, and we try to be really reflective on that too, to say, you know, I understand I was really short with you and that wasn't fair and you didn't deserve to be treated that way, but this was what was going on with me. And, you know, I'd like to apologize essentially for, you know, my out, my mom outburst because it wasn't necessary because I think we all have those moments and it's a really important thing to mirror to the kids. And even my 12 year old, you know, she's like 12 going on 25, I swear, but she does this very staged eye roll and she has my wit and sarcasm, which is a blessing and a curse, I would say. <laughs> Yeah. Lacey knows what I'm talking about. I love it. I have the same thing. I have the same problem. <laughs> but actually, like, you know, she's that age where she doesn't want to be hugged or, you know, you can tell her that you love her and she'll tell you the same, but she just, you know, she's just like, she's pulling away because she's starting to become a teenager, but you'll have those moments. We'll have those moments with her where she's just like, I was, I, I don't know why I was really mean in that moment because sometimes the 12 year old brain really doesn't know why it, it does what it does. Mm -hmm. But she can sometimes the 35 year old brain well, doesn't yeah. know it does what it does. <laughs> true. So true. But she'll actually say, like, you know, I, I I'm sorry I acted that way and I didn't mean to take it out on you or that type of stuff. So we we try really hard to mirror that to the girls. Yeah. 
I would say my husband's temper is a lot shorter than mine, a lot shorter than mine. That's one of the things I, I really taught myself through therapy over the last two years is how to not mirror back anger when it's sent to me. So the girls will get frustrated. They'll be in my face. They'll be loud. And I almost always respond in a talking voice and remind them that I'm responding in a talking voice and that the tone that they're using is disrespectful. And it doesn't always work. And I wouldn't say it's easy. It's actually pretty darn hard, to be honest. I can imagine. But I think, you know, the other thing that we did is we went to weekly family therapy. So Steve and I went by ourselves to family therapy every week for a year to work on our relationship as a couple and our family relationship with the goal that we were going to create a home life that was not going to emotionally damage our kids. And the therapist had kind of said, you know, well, that's a really lofty goal and this, that, and the next thing. But at the end of that year, they were kind of like, you know, you guys have really made a turnaround in your family life and in how things are. And it's not perfect. It's not meant to be perfect, but I think we've gained a lot more skills through this process. And it's something I wish I would have known, or I wish I would have thought about more when we had like, you know, like when I was staying up watching movies on Netflix, breastfeeding in the middle of the night, I wish I would have like had a parenting podcast to listen to instead. Mm -hmm. That probably would have been more useful. Totally. Totally. Can you tell us the name of those books again? Oh yeah. So it's put it in the show notes for our listeners. Yeah. The first one um, is the explosive child by Dr. Ross Green. And then he has one called lost at school. That is like the, the school stepping stone kind of a thing. Like how do you implement these things at school? And then lost and found is his last in the series. I think those books have probably been the most beneficial. I read a couple of books about like atypical kids and things like that. But I really think that The Explosive Child really, I thought I was reading it for Lauren and her explosive temper. But what I discovered is that I was reading it for Juliet and how things weren't working for her and we weren't asking her the right questions. Kids are super intuitive. And if you ask the right questions, they, will give you more answer than you have ever thought of. You know, like if you ask your five-year-old why they got dressed in the outfit that they got dressed in, they'll probably be able to tell you, well, I wanted, you know, I saw this and that looked fun or, you know, that shirt that you really like is really scratchy for me. So I don't want to wear it. Stuff that you wouldn't get if you didn't ask an open-ended question. Mm Mm-hmm. Can you give us some examples of your like go-to open-ended question questions? Because I feel like like you have some really, really good ones. Yeah, like if your kid's being challenging. So one of the things that I did recently was I subscribed to Positive Parenting Solutions. Now it's kind of a pricey program. Don't get me wrong. It has a lot of good stuff in it also. But one of the things that I really took away from as much as I've done, and I haven't done as much as I probably should have, I haven't been through all the lessons yet, but is to say something like I've noticed and then your observation and then giving an open-ended like what's up. So saying like, I've noticed you're really short with me today. What's up? Like, I'll do that with my 12-year-olds and she'll say like, well, 
I have my period right now and my stomach is cramping and I just don't feel good. And I didn't sleep well last night. Okay. I could see why you valid. Yeah. Right. Mm -hmm. So then we talk about, well, how can I help you feel better? How can, you know, what can I do to make your life easier? And Mm -hmm. sometimes it's as simple as, you know, I'd really just like to read my book for half an hour by myself and just not be disturbed. Okay. I can set you up for that. Yeah. Which is better than like being annoyed with them for treating you that way. Not even asking where it's coming from and then getting mad at them and making them feel like crap. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I could totally see this. It's totally making sense. I love it. You're going to change so many parents' lives with this podcast today. The other thing that we got from uh, inpatient stay. So Juliet was an inpatient for six days. And if you ever have to have your child at an inpatient psychiatric facility, there's a couple of questions you need to ask, particularly if they're young. The first thing is, how are they going to keep your child safe in terms of emotionally safe and physically safe? Because no child and adolescent psychiatric unit has only one patient. They have a multitude of patients there for a multitude of reasons. Juliet was the only child that was there under the age of 12. So she had a one-on-one nurse that was with her around the clock. All the other kids were 14, 15, up to 17 years old, and they were kept in a different, while they ate in the same place, she always had her nurse with her to make sure that she wasn't mingling with kids who were not age appropriate for her to mingle with. Mm -hmm. And then like the safety plan. So they did 15 minute rounds. So at nighttime, you took, you know, they would like, you could visit for an hour in the evening. So we would tuck her in and every 15 minutes, somebody would enter her room with a flashlight and make sure that she was in her bed to account for where she was to make sure that she wasn't doing anything she wasn't supposed to do that she hadn't like left her room or what have you. So like the safety plan is always something to ask. And the other thing that we learned is one of the reasons for kids emotional meltdowns is a acronym called HALT and it stands for hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. Mm-hmm. So those are the four basic needs for humans that will have, you know, you'll have trouble navigating your environment if any of those needs aren't met. So if you're really hungry, we all get a little hangry sometimes. Yes, definitely. If you're angry about something that, or frustrate, you know, any of those really big emotions, not so much like big, happy emotions, but like big negative emotions. So like big frustration, things like that. Lonely. Sometimes kids try and and grab your attention in ways that's really annoying just because they want to be close to you. And tired. Kids do all sorts of interesting things when they're tired because their coping mechanisms just don't work when you're you're not running on all cylinders. And I think the older that kids get, you see more mouthiness and less like temper tantrumy type stuff. Right. So those are things that we learned. The other thing that we learned is something called a MAD drill. So you tense your muscles. The M is for muscles. So you tense your muscles 10 times as hard as you possibly can and then release. So you do that 10 times in a row. You try and so you take 10 deep breaths in a row. So like breathing in and out 10 times. And then for a countdown of 10, you just try and stay very calm for 10 seconds and then kind of reevaluate what your emotional state is. If you're still that angry and that probably requires an older kiddo or an adult to help them through that. Like I could see doing this with a four or five year old, but you'd have to do it together. Mm -hmm. It's not something that 
they're going to do on their own. It's something that you could walk them through. And with Juliet, we did walk her through that a lot in the beginning when she would get frustrated. Yeah, I can definitely see how, I mean, I feel like if I did all those things, I would forget why I'm annoyed because it's like a lot of coordination. (laughs) (laughs) Especially if you're trying to do them with like, walk a like four or five-year-old through this. Like I could see where you'd both be like, yeah, we're going to go do something else now. We don't remember what we were mad about. (laughs) Right. Well, and at the end of it, you're like, okay, you know, with Juliet, a lot of times would end up with her laughing because she couldn't sit still for 10 seconds without doing something. Yeah. Now are, are the girls now both medicated and are, if so, are they technically diagnosed with the same mood disorder or different ones or are they treated the same way? Like, and do they bond over it or is it like a point of contention? I would say it's a point of contention because they each know how to really aggravate each other. Like mm-hmm. all siblings do. They're twins, yeah. Right. Exactly. Mm-hmm. So um, they have different diagnoses. Juliet's is a mood disorder and Lauren's is DMDD or disruptive mood dysregulation disorder. Lauren takes different medication. She takes an antidepressant and then she takes um, long acting guanfacine, which is intuitive, which is a, um, I think it's an alpha two agonist. Anyway, it basically like calms down those big emotions for her. And then Juliet takes Seroquel for her mood disorder, which kind of evens things out. In the beginning, we were mapping her moods on a scale of like minus five to plus five kind of a thing. Like, because the deal with bipolar is you can flip between very happy, almost elated to like very sad suicidal. And they really wanted us to start tracking her moods to see if she was rapidly cycling between the two or if she was kind of vacillating and the couple of months that we tracked her you could definitely see that she was going like there were days that she would be fine even happy and then there were other days when she would just be like in the corner crying and I think the Seroquel really helped kind of even her out she's been on the same dose for the last probably year and the same with Lauren she's been on the same dose of meds too and their meds are prescribed by a psychiatrist that we see probably every other month now Mm -hmm. and then we have they each have their own separate therapist. It's interesting when you have kids and you need a a therapist for one kid and a therapist for the other kid, they can't see the same therapist. It's a conflict of interest. Mm -hmm. So we actually found, and actually that was an interesting story. When Juliet was being discharged from inpatient psych, they said, well, you need a follow-up appointment in the next like five to seven days. And the social worker, because the psych hospital was in a different county, said, we don't know anything about the county that you live in. So you're going to have to figure it out. So uh, I, I sat very supportive, (laughs) right? I mean, they did the best they could. If I wanted to travel back to that county for care, I could have an appointment in five to seven days. But like realistically, long term, that really wasn't going to be a good. It wasn't going to be a good option for that. For meds, I would absolutely go to a child psychiatrist, hundred percent, because it's not something that a pediatrician is equipped to deal with, right? But. So I sat there with my notepad and, you know, my insurance information on my phone, trying to figure out like which therapists were covered and basically took the first available appointment at the first place, called the next place. If they had a sooner appointment, then I took that one. And it ended up where we found a a trauma-focused therapist actually who specializes in kids. And she helped unwind a lot of that emotional baggage from school, which was really helpful. And in the same office, we found a family therapist for Steve and I and a therapist for Lauren. So they're all in the same office, which is 
a small miracle, to be honest. We don't live in a town that's all that big, and there is a huge gap in mental health services pretty much wherever you are. Wow. What an incredible story, really, truly. Like, I I can't even put myself in your shoes, but I know that this episode's definitely going to change a lot of people's lives and outlooks. and, And even if they're not struggling with it yet or at all, it will at least open their mind up to what's possible at such a young age and how to, you know, just talk to your kid. Yeah. I love the way that you talk about open-ended questions. And that is definitely something that I'm going to be incorporating more into because like we're trying to talk to our kids, but they're young, but it's also like, Sometimes like how how can you get them to talk to you and when they, you know, shut down and don't want to talk. So I love the idea of these open-ended questions and it's something that I am definitely incorporating. So thank you, Tina, for that. My pleasure. Such an important topic and it's something that it can get in the day-to-day grind of trying to get kids to and from this place and that place and these lessons and, you know, this work schedule and all of those things. Like that's one of the things that we really got caught up in was, you know, we, we have two kids that play hockey and in Minnesota hockey is a huge thing. And that was like five days a week. Like we realized that the grind of our lives was actually getting in the way of how our family was functioning. And I think that by far was the biggest Thing was to be able to take a step back and ask those open-ended questions and figure out what was going on so that we can make a better choice moving forward. Now, Tina, I really, really appreciate your level of vulnerability during this um, because this is some hard stuff that we've talked about tonight. And so thank you so much for being willing to share this because like Ellen said, this is a really important topic And one that it's hard to talk about, but I know that it is so crucially important to everyone's family unit. If somebody wanted to get in touch with you or reach out to you, if they're having, you know, if they want to connect because of a similar struggle or something like that, how would they do that? So I'm on Facebook. Um, I'm on the CRNA Moms Facebook page. My Facebook name is Tina Lynn. I have quite a few CRNA Moms actually that I talk with about this sort of stuff and reach out to or have made posts and things like that. And I've reached out to them. I think that it's really important to know your crisis numbers in your community. Lacey, I don't know if you realize this, but our community has what's called a warm line. And it is a hotline that has people staffed 24-7 that can talk you through what's going on in your life. It's something I didn't know about. I didn't know that either. No. Yeah. So we have uh, an actual crisis intervention team. They've been out to my house once that they do in-person crisis intervention. So Juliet was suicidal probably two weeks after she was discharged home. And the crisis team came out and said, we need to, you need, you know, she is a legit risk. You need to take her back to the ED. And she actually saw one of the psychiatry residents that was there when she was an inpatient. So there are people out there that can help you discern, is my child serious? Are they not serious? What's my next step? Who can I talk to? The warm line is one of those things that if you get yourself into a parenting crisis where you're, you know, you don't know what to do next, they can help you in that, or they can help you discern if your child needs to be seen or escalate care or resources in the community. 
one of the things that we were told early on was we kept getting asked by people at Prairie Care who our caseworker was. And I just kind of scratched my head and I'm like, so tell me about this caseworker thing. Like, what are you guys talking about? And they're like, what do you mean you don't have a caseworker? Well, in Minnesota, there's a children's mental health program where you can actually have a social worker that's dedicated just to your child to help in a crisis, find placement, find additional resources. So for a year, we had a caseworker for Juliet, and she's actually graduated from meeting those services. But there's all sorts of stuff out there that if you're not in the know, meaning if you're not in the mental health industry, you would never know. Like, I didn't even know that. And it wasn't until somebody at Prairie Care had said, oh, well, this is the number you need to call and this is the the information you need to send to them and then they'll refer you. So there's resources out there, I think, for parents and for individuals and for the kids. You know, my 12-year-old knows how to find the suicide prevention hotlines. She knows how to give those numbers to her friends. And she knows that she can come to us if she feels like any of her friends is at risk and that we will help coming from a place of empathy and and a place of love, not from a place of punishment or judgment. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a really important piece is that you have to kind of teach yourself not to be judgmental when, or to brush something off, I guess would be the better way to put it. Like, oh, well, they're just being dramatic. Like, You know, that's something that I used to think about Juliet a lot is that she's just being emotional or dramatic. And now I understand so much more about her and how her mind works and how I can help or how we can help her, that we really come from a place of empathy and a place of support now more than anything. Thank you so much. Thank you so much, Tina, for sharing with us. We're going to wrap up here, but I do encourage anyone listening, if they're struggling with this, It's good to know the resources in your community, even if you're not struggling with it. I'm going to look these numbers up just so that I know how to find them if I need them in a hurry. So I encourage everyone listening to just look up your resource numbers in your area and just so you know how to find it. Mm -hmm. And yeah, thank you again, Tina, for coming on. We're just going to wrap this up by saying this has been another episode of Scrub Caps and Sippy Cups. Thank you everyone for listening. We're so grateful that I I kind of forget that people actually listen to us talk about this stuff. <laughs> so I it's weird that there are people listening sometimes, but thank you so much for joining us. Please follow us thanks. on... Thanks. Well, <laughs> thanks, Dina. Please follow us on Facebook. Uh, we're... Scrubcast and Sippy Cups. We're on Instagram at Hey Smart Mamas. And then you can follow us individually. Crystal, who couldn't be here tonight, is STL underscore injector. Ellen is at Ellen Lawletta. And I'm at Ms. Lacey Lee. So thank you all again. Please rate, review, subscribe, share with a friend. And don't hesitate to share this episode with somebody that you think needs it. Thank you so much. <laughs>